We turn in God's Word this evening to the continuation of our passage this morning, only now we shift our sights from Rehoboam over to Jeroboam. And as we shift our sights, the subject of worship becomes primary. And uh, that's where we are in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21. And so uh, from this historical narrative, uh, we'll learn of uh, Jeroboam's account of uh, the error, the sin that Jeroboam makes that is made far too often, even today in the church of Jesus Christ. And Brother Jim, after uh, uh, the scripture as you pray, looking back, uh, there are uh, three women in our congregation who I think would appreciate prayer with pregnancies, two of which in particular might be uh, getting to the point of being rather uncomfortable. So if you could uh, remember them in prayer as well. We pick it up then at uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. So we had the separation. Jeroboam and the ten tribes go to the north. Rehoboam maintains control over Judah. And then Benjamin has sort of been absorbed into Judah by this particular time. So beginning at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the high country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel. And made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel, on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings to you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. 
And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me, refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If I give you half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Thus far the reading of God's word. I encourage you to keep it open this evening if you have a Bible with you so that you can follow along. Let's again ask for the Lord's blessing. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you again, Lord, and thank you for the privilege that we have to come to you often. Lord, we thank you for the portion of your word that was read tonight. And we thank you for Pastor Bob, and we pray that you'll give him wisdom tonight to teach to us that word, where you talk about worshiping you in the proper way and with the proper heart. So, Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word tonight. And, Lord, in light of the Family Life Center offering, we give you thanks, too, for the new life that you are bringing into our congregation with the three pregnancies that we have here. We pray that you'll continue to bless those and that you would take them to term and that we would have healthy babies soon to join our family here at Little Farms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So first of all, Jeroboam's got a dilemma. Everybody went home. Everybody went back to their places people of Israel or from those ten tribes go back home, Jeroboam begins to think, I got a problem. I got a dilemma. That's our first point. We find it in verses 25 through 27. But the reason Jeroboam has a dilemma is because he's not trusting the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord has already come to Jeroboam through Ahijah the prophet and said, you will have the ten tribes. Don't worry. That is what you are given. Jeroboam distrusts the word of the Lord. He is out trying to outthink the Lord. He's trying to, as it were, worry himself into a case where he's going to accept a horrible decision that he's going to make. He's got a dilemma. You say, well, what exactly is his dilemma? His dilemma is this. The temple's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in Judah, and Jerusalem is under the control of Rehoboam. He knows that there are required times. Deuteronomy chapter 12, you remember from this morning, There are required times when the people of God need to go to Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. 
Not only is the temple there, but so is the altar of sacrifice there. And so are the priests. And so are the Levites. This is the center of Israel's worship. God has declared that Jerusalem is to be this central location of the worship that he has commanded and that those who are in a covenant relationship with him are to come to Jerusalem to worship. For Jeroboam now, this causes a dilemma. Because he's fearful. What he's fearful of is that people, for example, in one of these ten northern tribes, let's say somebody in Naphtali, okay, uh, kind of the outskirts, way up there, way in the north. They, they, these people of Naphtali on these occasions are going to come down to Jerusalem. They're going to see the beauty of the temple. They're going to see the sacrifices being altered. They're going to see offered. They're going to see the high priest in his clothing. They're going to realize this is what God has commanded. This is what God has instituted. And they're not going to want to go back home. They're going to say, you know what? I think we ought to just move here. I think we ought to just stay here. They then will become servants of Rehoboam. He's going to lose people. He, and if you lose people, you lose some tax dollars. If you lose some tax dollars, you lose some spending money. Spending money that can be used to build up your fortresses. Spending money that can be used for your own indulgences. But he's also fearful of something else. If they travel down and go to the temple and they realize that this is the place that God has truly instituted... Maybe they're going to think Rehoboam is really the true king because he reigns over the place of central worship. So their hearts are going to be devoted to Rehoboam. They're going to go back to Naphtali, but they're going to be saying, you know what? I don't think Jeroboam's legitimate. I don't think he ought to be king. It even says it in the text, right? He fears they will come back and kill him. He's fearful. See, this is his dilemma. The temple's down there. He's fearing the loss of perhaps his role as king of these ten tribes. He's fearing the loss of money, of income. He's fearing the loss of people. He's going to be weak. Going to lose his position. This is his dilemma. I want you to note two times in this passage where it talks about what Jeroboam does. Verse 26, it says, Then Jeroboam said, In his heart. In his heart. Right? Verse 28, So the king took counsel. Okay? And, and it's not with the Lord. That's not who he is taking counsel with. This, this is all devised from his own heart. Verse 33. In the month that he had devised from his own heart. 
Jeroboam's dilemma, so he thinks, is that all I'm left with is my own reasoning. But that's the pride of man. What we're seeing on display in these few verses is the pride of man. I will decide. I will make the decision. I'm not going to trust what the Lord has said. I'm not going to trust in the word of the Lord. I'm going to do what I think is the right thing to do. Remember that Deuteronomy 12 passage? I told you it was going to be a context for tonight. Yeah, we don't want to be in the situation, the Lord said, where every man does what's right in his own eyes. That's what we're seeing happening here. Hundreds and hundreds of years later. Deuteronomy 12. Somebody operating by doing what they think is right in their own eyes. As the king, as the leader of these ten tribes. This is his dilemma. How do I fix this? What do I do? Now notice, the solution is... Trust the Lord. Be obedient to the Lord. The Lord's giving you these ten tribes. If the Lord desires to lessen your numbers, so he desires to lessen your numbers. But trust the Lord. That option is not on Jeroboam's table. So secondly, Jeroboam makes a decision. So, point one, Jeroboam's dilemma. Point two, Jeroboam's decision. What is his decision? Well, it boils down to this. Jeroboam decides to change the commands of God. He changes the commands of God. One, verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have to go up to Jerusalem. You have had to go up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Does that sound strikingly familiar? That that was Aaron at Mount Sinai with the golden calf. Ah, behold your gods. Was that a sin? Yeah. Yeah. Did that violate a commandment? Yeah, probably a number of them. But you see, Jeroboam's decision to how to get out of his dilemma was to, I'll just change the commands of God. I will will bypass God's command of not having a graven image, of having no other gods. Even if we give Jeroboam the benefit of the doubt, that he was attempting to worship God through the calves, it's still a violation of the commandment. But given the fact that all the people around them are worshiping calves, eh, I don't think we even have to give him the benefit of that doubt. He's introducing new worship. He is going around the commands of God. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. Deuteronomy chapter 12, you need to go to Jerusalem. Jeroboam, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. God, you shall not have any other 
any other gods before me. You shall not make for me a graven image of any likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. Jeroboam, here's a couple of golden calves. These are your gods. Worship here. Worship at these two places. I'll set one up in Bethel, in the southern part of my kingdom. I'll set another one up in Dan, in the far northern part of the kingdom. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. We've had enough of this going to Jerusalem. Direct violation of the command of God. Verse 31. He also made temples on high places. He didn't just set up two altars or two calves to worship. He built other temples, rival temples, to the one that God said, here is where my name shall dwell. Jeroboam saying, ah, forget about that one down in Jerusalem. Look, I can build temples too. Verse 31. And appointed priests from among all the people who were not the Levites. God had given specific commands about who were to be the priests, who were to serve in the temples. Jeroboam's like, no, we're not going to do that anymore. Now, why isn't he doing that? Most likely because most of the Levites have already left. They're like, hey, we're not going to be up here. Why would we be up here? Our job is temple worship. We're going to go worship at the temple. Or they're resistant to this whole notion of worship that Jeroboam's bringing about and saying we're not participating. Well, i got to have temple workers for the temples I built. Who shall I have? I don't know. You guys from Naphtal I want to serve? Sure, you can serve. God had specifically said that the priests had to come out of the tribe of Levi. Hmm. Not Jeroboam. Jeroboam says, priests can be anybody. These worship leaders, anybody. Doesn't really matter. Doesn't, doesn't really matter. Whatever fits, whatever suits, however this works out, we're not going to look for, for priests out of the Levitical tribe anymore. Verse 32. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. So now he has a rival day of worship. God had commanded one for the people of Israel. He said, you don't have to do that one. I got a better feast day. Let's just stay home. Let's just stay in our area. Let's just stay in our territory. And we'll celebrate here. Not according to the word of the Lord. And note verse 33. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel. Not only makes temples, he not only makes gods, he not only makes anybody to be priest, he not only makes any day, he says, you don't need the temple that was consecrated. You don't, or you don't need the altar that was consecrated. You don't need the altar upon which the sacrifices are accepted by God. I'll make my own. And we'll have our own altar. And we'll offer our own sacrifices to the Lord. We'll do our own thing. He decided to change the commands of God. In regard specifically to worship. How 
God was to be worshipped. That God had so clearly outlined in that Old Testament. Whether it be in Leviticus, whether it be in Deuteronomy, whether it be in Exodus. God gave law upon law, upon precept, upon precept. This is the way that you are to worship. This is what you are to do. And Jeroboam is just saying, no, we're going to change it. Jeroboam's decision, you see, is to worship by convenience. What's most convenient? What's the easiest? We'll make it close so you don't need to travel so far. We'll make it easy for everybody. We don't want to get people worn out. We don't want people to have to go all the way to Jerusalem. Enough of this going to Jerusalem. That's a long walk. Remember the psalm we read? Psalm 122 at the beginning of worship, what's its title? It's called a song, a psalm of ascent. You know why it's an ascent? Because it's a climb up to Jerusalem. It's a lot of work. You don't want to go through all that work. I'm making it easy for you. I'll make it simple. It won't take near as much time. It'll save time. You won't need to pack clothes. Financially, it'll be cheaper. This is just a much better faith. See, Deuteronomy chapter 12 said, some things can be done in your hometown. Some things. It's okay. God gets it. Certain things were allowed to be done in their own hometown. But Deuteronomy 12 said, there are some things that I require you to come to Jerusalem for. What Jeroboam is changing are the required things that were required for them to go to Jerusalem for. God already had built in convenience. Jeroboam is changing anything that was inconvenient. Now, he has his own reasons. Okay? He has his own goals. He has his own fears. He has his own agenda. His reasoning isn't, I'm doing it for convenience. His reasoning is, I don't want to lose people. I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to keep people here. I'm trying to keep the, the nation open. I'm, not try, I'm trying not to lose folks here. So the way I'll do this is to make their worship convenient as possible. You see, what's happening here is that worship has changed from a commandment of God to man's reason. Listen to how this works. A place of worship is a place of worship. What difference does it make where you worship? A place to offer a sacrifice is a place to offer a sacrifice. What difference does it make where that place is? A priest to offer the sacrifice is a priest. What difference does it make who the priest happens to be? A holy day is a holy day. What difference does it make which day it actually is as long as we have a holy day? Do you see the reasoning of man? Man wants to explain away the commands and precepts of God. 
He wants to reason them away. That's what he is following. That's what he is doing. That's what's happening in this passage. That's why this passage is so pivotal for us to understand worship. So thirdly, let's look at Jeremiah's demise. Chapter 13. There is a repeated saying throughout the Old Testament from the rest of the times of these kings. And the repeated saying is, and he caused Israel to sin after the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Over and over and over again. God does not let go of this. God does not brush this aside. In chapter 13, God sends a prophet to him. As he's worshiping at this false altar that he has made, on the false day that he has proclaimed, probably with false priests and with false temple at a false calf. The prophet says, This is all going to fall apart. In fact, there's going to come a king of Judah who is going to tear this thing down and offer the very bones of the priest upon this altar. You can can almost see the rage beginning to grow in in Jeroboam, can't you? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you confront me with the word of God? How dare you confront me with God's truth? How dare you confront me with God's judgment? And and you can see the red just beginning. You can see the veins sticking out. And here comes the word. Seize him! And he can't pull back his hand. His kingly hand. His hand of authority. His hand of power. It's now a hand of nothingness. Pray for me. Pray. I, I can't continue as king this way. I'll have no authority. Pray, pray that that God would restore my hand. God, in his grace, restores Jeroboam's hand. He wants to thank the prophet and says to the prophet, come home with me. The prophet says, nope, can't do that. Sorry, cannot do that. Well, why not? Because God told me not to go anywhere with you. Okay, see ya. Sometime this next week, read the rest of the story of the prophet. I'll give it to you in summary. Prophet goes home. Another guy shows up and he says, hey, how you doing? Uh, You need to come with me. I don't know about that. Oh, yeah. As he journeys along, I believe it's a lion comes and devours him. And everybody goes, hmm. That's the prophet who wasn't supposed to go anywhere. Yeah. 
I want you to look at the end of chapter 13. So now we have a dead prophet, okay? That's that section, verses 11 on, okay, of, of chapter 13, okay? Go to verse 33. After this thing, now think about this, after this thing, he's heard the judgment from the prophet, his hand has been crippled, his hand has been restored, there's the death of a prophet for not following the specific command of God. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would he ordained to be priest of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. After all this, Jeroboam falls apart. I want you to turn to another passage. Okay, keep your finger here. Let's go to 2 Kings. Okay, 2 Kings, chapter, got to find my note, 17. Go down to verse 21. So this is roughly 250 years later. Okay, that, that turn of pages from 1 Kings 13 to 2 Kings 17 is about 250 years later. All right. Longer than we've been a country. Verse 21. When he, that is God, when God had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins of, that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Do you see what it comes back to? I mean, they had horrible kings. We, we just got done with Chronicles in our Thursday morning Bible study, and it, it, it goes back and forth, and we read about some of these kings of Israel. These guys are bad. These guys are evil. But when God summarizes it and says, when it comes down to it, the reason you are going into exile, the reason you as a nation are going out of existence is because you followed Jeroboam. You followed the sins of Jeroboam. You did not turn from them. You did not repent of them. What is the sin of Jeroboam? did not follow God's commands of worship. And of all the things, and believe me folks, there's lots of things that the church of Jesus Christ today needs to repent of. This has to be the number one. 
because it continues to this day. Because you see, today nobody asks the question, what does God want us to do? I know I hit upon this this morning, and it's been a few months since I said it, so I'll say it again. When a church that has for years and years and years had a morning and evening service, suddenly decides we're not going to have night church anymore. Did anybody ask, but what does God want? What does God want? What does God desire? What would God have us do? What would God have us do on a Lord's Day morning? What would God have us do on a Lord's Day evening? What would glorify Him the most? How can I best spend a Lord's Day evening? In His presence? Worshiping? At the place He calls us to come to worship? Or at a place of my own convenience. Who asks the question anymore? What does God want us to do? Oh, there's some pretty strong churches over there when they talk about issues of abortion and homosexuality and this and that. They're not asking the question, what does the Lord want me to do with my Sabbath evening? My friends, I'm telling you, that's the very same type of reasoning that Jeroboam went through. Well, nobody comes anymore. We start doing that and keeping that and... People will leave our church. They'll go to some place more convenient. Isn't that the same reasoning Jeroboam has here? I might lose people. So we'll just do what's convenient. We'll just change. Then, of course, we can get involved into the content of worship. Why do we do what we do? Well, because we've been doing it for generations? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. The question is, what does God want us to do? That's a question that requires some searching of the Scriptures. That's a question that requires studying. It's not a question where you just sit back and think, well, you know, I think kids today would like some more modern, upbeat music, so let's just do that. Is that okay? It may be. It it may be perfectly okay. It may be right. But the process of decision making shouldn't be, I feel like this would be good. I think this would be a good idea. That's what Jeroboam did. He devised in his own heart. He didn't consult the word of God. In fact, I think he's purposely not consulting it. 
Because they know what the word says. God's commands are clear. He tells us what he desires. You see, the question of what does God desire? What does God want? When his people worship is clearly answered in the word. But you have to study that word. You have to read that word. You have to put that word in the context in which it is. You have to build the background to why is God saying what he's doing? Why is God asking us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Why is God asking us to pray? Why is God asking us to read his word? Why is God asking us to preach that word? But you see, it's not what we want. It's not what we desire. It's not even what works. That's not the question. The question is, what does God want? What does God want with my Sabbath day? What does God want with my worship? What does God want? about how I come to worship? What does God want about how I come dressed for worship? What does God want about my attitude about worship? What does God want about my preparation for worship? What does God want? That ought to be the pressing question. What does God want? You see, that's why as you turn to Chapter 21 of our Westminster Confession of Faith, we read the following. And I'm just going to cite two of them. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, and with all the soul, and with all the might. How am I to worship? All my heart, all my soul, all my might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. There it is. This is the principle by which we worship. This is the information about why we worship. The elders of this church, myself included, are to be constantly, constantly looking at. Are we worshiping according to the word of the Lord? Is this what we are to be doing? Have we erected false altars rather than Jesus Christ alone? Have we erected 
secondary things and made them primary. And it is here that we find the answer to the question, what would God have me do in worship? How does God desire to be worshipped? And the answer is not looking down the road and saying, what's that church doing? Oh, let's us start that. What's that church doing? Let's us start doing that. Those may be good things. They may be biblical things. But that's the question. Is it right? Is it what God desires? And you know why this question is so crucial? Because of 2 Kings 17. It's a generational thing. For generations after generation after generation, the nation of Israel suffered under the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Because you see, it's not only the elders of this church, it's you as well. You have a decision to make. A decision regarding your worship. Is it according to the word of the Lord? Because you see, the decision you make today is a decision that affects your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and the generations beyond until Jesus Christ comes. How do I know that? 2 Kings 17. The end of the story. It comes back to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you. Acknowledging, Lord, our own hearts are often not full of the all. Acknowledging that when we come into your presence, there are so many other things rattling through our minds that you become secondary. There's things we want to say to somebody after worship. There's things we got to do after worship. There's this, there's that, and, and you're somewhere off in a distance. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us for worshiping tradition that is not informed by your word. Forgive us when we elevate a tradition to the place of scripture. Rather than looking at your word. Forgive us, Lord, when we worship in convenience. Doing that which we think is right in our own eyes. Rather than seeking to follow your commandments, and your words. Forgive us, Lord, even as elders and for myself as pastor, when we're more afraid of the fear of man than we are of you. And we're more afraid of losing people than we are of following the truths of your word. Forgive us. 
Forgive us, Father, if over the past we've set a bad example for our children or our grandchildren, that we have not modeled good and true worship. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to set new standards. Help us to set new priorities in our worship. To not let convenience rule and reign. Help us not to let comfort be our primary motivating factor. But help us, Father, to ask, what would God want? What do you want? Help us, Father, because we need to be forgiven as well. Because we don't prepare real well for worship. We don't think about it. We're not oftentimes spending prayer preparing. Forgive us. Entering into your presence is an awesome thing. So often we can be disrespectful. So often, Lord, we can, we can actually be rude to you. Forgive us for not taking the time to prepare our hearts and minds. Forgive us, Lord, for not dealing with sin in our lives the other six days and working at, making your priorities our priorities. Forgive us for making too much of self and not enough of you. Lord, as we contemplate this message and then as we come into your presence next Lord's Day, may we come with a, a new joy, a new refreshment, a new delight a new hope, a new comfort, a new assurance, a new desire to worship you in the beauty of holiness so that you might be glorified, not just in our Monday through Saturday, but that you might be glorified here as well. Forgive us when we make too much of individuals and not enough of you. Forgive us for ignoring your word. Not by some other altar do we ask for this forgiveness, but only by the one that you have provided, the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For he shed his blood So that our sins, here mentioned in this brief prayer, would be forgiven if we come truly repentant. May we, Father, seek your face. May we seek to bring you delight every day of the week, even on the Sabbath. In Christ's name, for Christ's glory, we pray. And God's people say, Amen.